Thanksgiving. Yes, it's Thanksgiving. Uh, we did a little mini early Thanksgiving with Alex's side of the family yesterday. And um, his granddad and Nana are in town. They joined us today as well. And um, they asked me what I was preaching on today. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm preaching on love your enemies, blah, blah, blah. And uh, Alex's Nana looked over to her husband, Alex's granddad, and said, well, I think you need to go hear that sermon tomorrow. <laughs> And then they gave me permission to say that today. So uh, there's just a fun little Thanksgiving greeting for you. All the fun things uh, that we do together as family, spending time with one another. But with that being said, we are not necessarily talking about Thanksgiving today. We are talking about loving our enemies. So, you know, we've been in Matthew chapter 5. And guess what? This is the last part of Matthew chapter 5. We finally made it, right? Two and a half, two months later? Something like that. We've made it through chapter 5 of Matthew, which is exciting. And so we come to the last of the six antithetical statements that Jesus gave in his scriptures. So these are the, you have heard it said, but I say statements, right? And we've been building up to this moment, week in and week out. You'll hear Alex and I say, this is one of the hardest commands. And then the next week we'll say, and this command is even harder, right? And that's kind of the point of Jesus. He's a really good teacher. And so he gives us a command, and then he gives us a little bit harder of a command. And then he gives us another command that's even harder. And then we finally get to the hardest, but also the greatest command that we find in the scriptures, right? In Matthew chapter two, 22, later on, Jesus is asked, What's the greatest commandment? And he says to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so what he does here in Matthew chapter five is he actually helps define the scope of what neighbor looks like. So he shows us this is what I am saying when I say love your neighbor. It's much bigger than you thought. So obviously, this command to love, although the greatest, is the hardest, which is why Jesus literally just spent all of chapter 5 helping us figure out how to follow this command to love. So briefly, I'm just going to give us a little bit of a recap as we approach the scripture today. So Jesus commands us first to love through obedience of the scripture as fulfilled by Christ. It's what we first talked about. Then he says, love by reconciling with all, avoiding contempt or long-lasting anger. Third, he commands us to love image bearers of Christ by avoiding the second look of lust. Four, he says to love your spouse as Christ loved the church and to avoid an easy divorce culture. Fifth, he says, love by being a truth-telling community. Six, he says, love by seeking a third way to avoid violence whenever possible. And finally, we get to this last command, which is love your enemies as your neighbor. So we're going to go ahead and do a deep dive here. We're going to start with verse 43. It says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
Similarly to some of the previous uh, statements that we've heard Jesus makes, he's referring to an Old Testament command. And this command, you have heard it said, right, that you shall love your neighbor, comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. It says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice, nowhere here does it say hate your enemy, right? That's, that is not a command found in scripture. But the Israelites of that day had taken this Leviticus command and it said, this command, love your neighbor, only applies to my Israelite community. Doesn't apply to anyone else around me. Therefore, it's okay to hate my enemy. It's okay to hate the Romans that are oppressing us. It's okay to hate the Samaritans who are half-bloods, to use a Harry Potter reference, anybody? Okay, some, some people got it. Uh, it's okay to love or to hate the Romans, to hate the Samaritans, to hate the prostitutes, to hate the lepers. As long as I just love my Israelite fellow neighbor, right? I'm okay, I'm good, I followed the scriptures. And Jesus here is saying, oh no, he's about to tell us that's not enough. You know, Uh, The Israelites were steeped in this culture of loving the Israelite, but not necessarily loving those outside of the Israelite people. And I would say that very much in our current culture, we do the same. Hatred is allowed to thrive, right? So I don't think we have to look very far for examples. I'm going to give you a few here. Uh, You didn't think that this was going to be, uh, you were going to come to church and do karaoke, but we're going to do a little bit of karaoke today. So uh, I took a Louisville slugger to both headlights. Anybody? Smash a hole in all four tires. Maybe next time he'll think before he cheats, Carrie Underwood. Fun fact, that was also um, the ringtone on my flip phone in junior high. Um, You could actually go to this thing called the T mobile store. Anybody remember and buy a ringtone? Yeah, that was my ringtone. So super good. Um, Also, uh, these boots were made for walking. Yeah, that's just what they'll do. One of these days, these boots are going to walk all over you. Yeah, Jessica Simpson. Okay. Or when you see my face, hope it gives you, I won't cuss in church. Hope it gives you, right? That's uh, American Rejects. That's what it is. Or you're so vain. You probably think the song is about you. Yeah. Carly Simon, an oldie, but a goodie. You don't have to look far in our current cultural context to know that hatred of enemy is encouraged, right? You don't have to go farther than your Spotify playlist or T-Swift's new album and her trail of hated exes, right? To know that we're taught to hate our enemies, right? And yet Jesus enters this scene in a culture that is very similar to ours, a culture of hatred for enemy that has transcended time and space and says, oh no, I don't do revenge songs. I don't hate my enemies. I love them. He fulfills or illuminates or extends the scriptures by saying love for fellow Israelite neighbor is not enough. He says, but I say to you, verse 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Here, Jesus not only tells us to love our enemies, he says you have to love your worst of enemies. Persecution inherently is your worst of enemies, right? It's the people that perpetrate the worst hate against you. Those that desire hatred or evil to be upon you, right? And Jesus says, even your worst of enemies, those that persecute you, those people you are called to love. 
Therefore, this command is more than just like a super super cute, literal, fun thing to talk about or do, right? It's more than that. It's a serious command that commands us to love our enemy, those that are our worst of enemy, those that desire to harm us. It's what Jesus did when he came to the cross in Luke chapter 23, verses 34. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. People who were perpetrating violence and evil against him, who had hung him on a cross with the desire for him to die, he says, Father, forgive them. It's the ultimate example of loving one's enemy. Uh, Something really interesting about this particular passage and something that we see throughout scriptures is when Jesus talks about neighbor, he always does it in the singular form. He never says, love your neighbors. Isn't that interesting? Never noticed that, but it's the truth. He never says, love your neighbors. He says, love your neighbor, right? And then he always uses the plural form when he says enemies. He says, love your enemies. And scholars believe this is purposeful, and here's why, okay? We learn two things when we learn about love of neighbor singular versus love of enemy plural. Jesus uses love of neighbor singularly to remind us of the individual nature of loving one's neighbor, This keeps us from the cop-out of loving generalities. So, I love the poor, right? Or I love the homeless. Wonderful things, but also not personal, right? They don't require us to get in the weeds, to get deep. To be able to say, I generally love such and such a group, is to not address the cantankerous individual that you come across every single day, right? Secondly, Jesus says, love your enemies, plural, to remind us of the universal command to love all of our enemies, all kinds of enemies. This includes personal enemies, so those that threaten our very well-being, comfort, safety, those of the ones that we love, those that want to cause harm to our families. This includes national enemies. So for Americans, this includes China. This includes Russia. This includes ISIS, love for national enemies. This includes love for political enemies. So maybe this is the far left for you, or maybe this is the far right for you, or maybe it's Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi, you fill in the blank, right? And yes, even religious enemies. The word persecution here is not accidental. We tend to immediately think of religious, right, persecution when we hear the word persecution. Jesus specifically is also calling us to love those who desire to bring down Christianity and the cause of Christ, who purposefully desire to see the demise of the church and the demise of Christianity as a whole. And I don't really want to get into a religious liberties debate here. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I do want to talk about specifically is the people that sometimes for us are the hardest to love. And Jesus says, you are called to love them regardless. I want to give a quick little example. I teach public speaking in a college context and a secular university. And so there's a lot of people I meet all times, all days, all semesters, whatever, that are vastly different than me, right? 
But it's not often that I get a student in class who like really is angered by the fact that I'm a Christian or a pastor. But one semester I did, because that's how it goes. And uh, I had a student, she grew up in church. She um, went to Bible study. She was all about uh, being a Christian when she was in high school. And some things happened to her life. And she was pretty much at the point where she hated Christ, hated Christianity, hated the church, hated the Bible, wanted absolutely nothing to do with it. And it didn't help that I don't always like self-disclose I'm a pastor uh, at the beginning of every semester, but it didn't help that someone at the very beginning of the semester asked what I did for a living. And I was like, oh, I'm a pastor. And immediately it was like, whoop, I hate her. And so, um, of course, the student decides after knowing that I'm a pastor and a Christian, all this, that she wants to give a speech on how Christianity is the root of all evil in the world. I kid you not. This was the speech she wanted to give. It's like, this is awesome. Cool. And it didn't help that she did like a really bad job just like fulfilling the basic requirements of the speech. And I was like, oh, Lord, she's going to think I hate her. This is not what I want. And so, (laughs) you know, I'm listening to the speech. I'm trying to give her points where I can. You know, it's not even about the content at this point. It's like horrible organization. She didn't prepare. It's this whole thing, right? And so, you know, we've got this unique relationship. And uh, I could have chosen to lash out or to defend my faith in interpersonal conversations and interactions with her. But I didn't. I decided, you know what, I'm going to be as kind to her, as encouraging to her. I'm going to help her as much as I can. And at one point during the semester, some horrible things happened to her. I mean, like, I would not wish this on my worst enemy. Um, let's see what I did there. Uh, I wouldn't have worsened it on, any, on anyone, right? And um, so it was really affecting her schoolwork. I took some time to sit down with her, and we worked out a plan, uh, tried to get her to the place where she could, you know, do really well in the course despite everything that was happening in her life. And I will never forget, I sat down to do one-on-ones uh, with all my students at the end of the semester to kind of help them as they move into their final speech. And she came to me, we did our one-on-one, and I just took some time to encourage her because she had significantly improved from that first speech about how Christianity was the root of all evil. And um, I will never forget her face lit up like a Christmas tree. It was like the first time anyone had ever said anything encouraging to her. And at no point in that interaction did I ever defend Christianity or the Bible or Jesus or whatever. I simply just decided to be a really encouraging teacher in her life. That's what it looks like to love our enemies, those that desire persecution for us. Jesus not only tells us, though, to love our enemies, he says to pray for them, which, if I'm being honest, is kind of like the most annoying part about all of this, because prayer is almost the highest form of love, right? To, like, pray for somebody's well-being who you really dislike is like, oh, do I really have to do this, right? And yet Jesus calls us to. This is part of the reason why corporately we pray for our enemies every week in church and every week in microchurch, right? Corporately, we do the confession prayer together. We say, I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbor as myself, right? In microchurch, we pray the Lord's Prayer. We say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those that have sinned, or another translation would be those who have persecuted us. It's through these times of corporate prayer that we are reminded and spurred on to pray for our enemies. 
Jesus goes on to say, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and 45a, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Sometimes we read this and we like get a little nervous, right? Because it sounds like rewards-based or like righteousness-based theology. It's like, oh man, so I have to like love my enemies in order for me to be the child of God, right? That like gets into some weird territory. But scholars believe that Jesus, in his cultural context, this is not a rewards-based type of phrase, but rather a promise that he is giving his most dedicated of disciples, In the words of scholar Dale Bruner, Jesus here is saying, if we live this counter-cultural way of loving one's enemy, we will come to experience God the Father in an especially intimate way. We become God's closest sons and daughters. That is to say, Christ is asking us to do what God himself did. For what greater example do we have of enemy love than God sending his son to a world he knew would crucify him, right? In learning to love our enemies, we do as God did and thus become more like him, more intimate with him, having shared the same sacrificial experience with him. For what child, right, doesn't imitate what his father does. So in imitation of what God does, we become like his children. We become closer to him. Jesus goes on to confirm God's quality of enemy love by giving us an analogy or an example. He says, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That is to say that the creator God shows no partiality to the just or the unjust. He treats them the same. The sun continues to rise and the rain continues to fall on both the evil and the good. The God of creation is a God who loves his enemies. Follow him by loving your enemies and you will be like his child. One truly learns, when one truly learns to imitate him and follow in his footsteps. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. You know, tax collectors were considered some of the most despised people in Jesus's time. And what most people don't realize is that tax, collector, the tax collectors themselves were Jews. So tax collectors weren't Roman individuals. The Roman government actually appointed Jewish people to collect Roman taxes. And they said, by the way, if you want to extort them for, mo- for more money, that's fine as long as we get what we need. So the Jewish people that had become tax collectors, right, they were extorting monies, not just from Jewish people, but their neighbors, the people that lived in the same town as them, people that they may have one time called friend. And Jesus is saying here, if some of the worst people you can think of can love those that love them, what is special about that? What's special about loving people who love you? Nothing. That love's not enough. But Jesus defines neighbor as enemy. So when we learn to love those who don't love us, now that's something special. I would say that those gathered in this room, it's not hard to love the people sitting next to us. It's not always hard to love our friends. It's not always hard to love our spouses, people that have the same skin tone as us, people that are in our same culture, right? 
It is hard, however, to love those who we feel don't deserve it, who are different than us, or who don't love us. It's almost as if Jesus is asking the question here, what makes you different? If the world can love those that love them, what makes you different from the world? What makes you salt, right, from earlier in Matthew chapter 5? What makes you light? What makes you a city on a hill if you look just like the world around you? Here's what makes you different. Enemy love. Demonstrating a counter-cultural way of loving one's enemy. That's what makes it worth it. That's what makes us different. In the words of scholar Scott McKnight, to love humans is to love all humans. The idea of prejudicial love is not within Jesus's kingdom. Even the tax collector can prejudicially love. Jesus goes on to say in verse 47, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. The word greet here is better translated as warmly greet or pass the peace as it was known in Jesus's day. It was actually like a, a literal prayer for people. So as you would greet people, you'd say, peace be with you. And it was a, a prayer on people. Uh, and generally speaking, right, you would only greet somebody warmly who you knew or you, you loved or who was a fellow Israelite. And what Jesus is challenging his disciples here to do is say, greet warmly the Romans. Greet warmly the Samaritans. Greet warmly the prostitutes. Greet warmly the lepers. Greet warmly the tax collectors. Although enemy love does at times call for heroic acts, often Jesus doesn't need our heroicism. He simply wants us to greet all people warmly as if they were an old friend. You know, I grew up with three sisters, and my middle sister, Annie, is probably the most introverted of all of us. And so, of course, opposites attract, and she married probably the most extroverted person I've ever met in my entire life. He, like, way out extroverts our entire family. Uh, his name is Taylor. And we have this, like, running joke in my family, uh, similar to, like, where's Waldo? We're always like, where's Taylor, because inevitably, wherever we go, we end up losing Taylor. And here's why. He strikes up conversations with the most random of people, and within 30 minutes, he's exchanged numbers with them. They become best friends, and they're going out to coffee next week. And you think I'm exaggerating, but Alex can tell you, like, this literally happens everywhere we go. I'm like, Taylor, how do you have time to, like, have this many friends? I don't understand, right? But here's the deal. I don't think Jesus is necessarily calling us to be Taylor Peisner, although I love my brother-in-law. I think Jesus is calling us similarly to Taylor to greet all people warmly, as if they were close friends of ours, which is difficult because, to be honest, this teaching of Jesus doesn't leave any room to be a grumpy customer, to have a bad day and to walk into a shop and to treat someone rudely or to barely acknowledge their existence. It doesn't give us room to treat service people like they are literal servants. Jesus is pretty clear. You need to be greeting all people warmly. Why? That's what makes you different. That's what makes you salt and light. If you just act like everybody else in the world, going about their busy day, not acknowledging people's feelings, life, stories, emotions, what makes you different? 
For to love one's enemy and for one's enemy to become your neighbor is to greet all with the warmth of an old friend. Jesus then ends chapter 5 and pretty much this entire chapter with the following statement. Verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I don't know about you, but when I read that verse, I'm like, cool, Jesus, I'll just get right on that. I'm just going to add that to my to-do list. Be perfect. Check. Okay, right? Like, cool, that was helpful. Not. Um, But we have to dig a little bit deeper to know what Jesus is telling us here. Uh, This word perfect is telos in the Greek, and it actually means or has the connotation of completion, realized maturity, or like full adult development. So this would never be used in regards to a child. This is like full maturity, full adult development. So it's better translated as like a goal or an aim or full realized completion. I think it's helpful. There are two different scholars that have an extended paraphrase of this verse. So I'm going to read these, and I think it gives us a better understanding of Jesus's intention here. Scott McKnight writes in his commentary, be perfect, that is, love both your fellow Jewish neighbors and the Roman enemies in your midst. As your father makes the sun rise and the rain fall on all humans, both Jews and Romans, so you are to be perfect in love as your father is perfect in love. Scholar Dale Bruner puts it this way, and I like to say this is the Midwestern translation because he uses the word folks several times. I'm like, yeah, I get you. Uh, So then, folks, (laughs) so then you folks shall be as soon as possible perfectly mature people just as your heavenly father is perfectly mature. Jesus is effectively summarizing all of his commands here with one command. Love your neighbor, which includes your enemy. And if you do this, you will become a mature person just like God. You know, oftentimes as a pastor, I have people ask me, how do I grow in Christian maturity? Or how do I grow in God? And to be honest, the answer really is simple. It's this. Mature disciples obey Jesus' command to love. It's the greatest command of all time. It's the command that all of the scriptures rest on in Matthew chapter 22. Let me be clear. This command to be perfect in love does not mean to be sinless. Rather, it means that we always pursue love, and when we misstep, We correct our misstep in love. That's what spiritual maturity looks like. That's what it looks like to be a child of God. Worship team, if you want to go ahead and join me as we work to respond. You know, we end every week saying, what is a spiritual practice that we can do throughout our week to help us apply this sermon to our everyday life? And I joked a couple weeks back, if you were here for our... um, passage on divorce and remarriage that I really struggled uh, to come up with my spiritual practice for that week. It was just a harder passage too. And it was funny this week, I felt like I got a golden ticket because there's really only one application for this sermon. And it comes in the form of two questions. First question is, who is your enemy? And how are you turning your enemy into your neighbor? First, who is your enemy? 
Who's the person that makes your blood just boil? You know who I'm talking about. The moment I said that, you were like, oh, man, I know. This person makes my blood boil. That gets your emotions just like all out of whack. If you're a conservative Christian in this room, it's probably the raging liberal. If you're the left-leaning Christian in this room, it's probably the Donald Trump Republican. If you've been hurt by the church, if we're being honest, it might be a church leader or a pastor. Secondly, we have to ask ourselves the question, how are we turning our enemies into our neighbor? Here's the catch with this. Enemy love is not tolerance. That's really clear in the scriptures. Enemy love is not simply just tolerating someone's behavior. Enemy love is not claiming to hate the sin but love the sinner. In fact, many of us claim to love the sinner, but we rarely sit down at a table with them. Enemy love is sitting across from someone and doing the simple rain-falling, sun-rising task of having dinner with them or grabbing coffee. That's what enemy love looks like. You know, when I was in college, um, I had a really good friend. We got to know each other because we were coworkers. And about halfway through our college experience, um, this friend came out and was living with their partner. And they came to me because traditionally speaking, LGBTQIA plus community and the Christian community have been enemies of one another, right? They've been our ideological enemies. And um, this person came to me and they said, can we, like, can we still be friends? This is what I, I'm doing. This is what I've decided. This is my life change. Can we still be friends? And obviously, my automatic response was, absolutely. Of course we can be. I still care for you very much as a friend. That has not changed by any stretch of the imagination. And um, I have a, there's an author that I really enjoy. His name is Brian Zond. And he has this quote. And um, I feel like this story very much illustrates this quote quite perfectly. He says, an enemy is someone whose story you haven't heard. And over the course of our friendship, I learned that his dad was a pastor. And upon learning that he um, was gay, uh, had disowned him and would no longer see him and would no longer talk to him and would no longer let him come to family functions anymore. An enemy is someone's story you haven't heard, right? And I will never forget this moment. We were sitting down to have coffee right before um, graduation. He was moving. Uh, I was staying in the area, but I knew I would be moving eventually. And um, he looked at me towards the end of our conversation, and he said, you are the first Christian I've ever met that's made me think I could do this whole Jesus thing. And every time I think about that moment, I get really emotional because here is what loving your enemy means. It means being Jesus to people who would never truly hear about his kingdom, about the enemy love that he has for all people. Here's why this is so important. If we don't learn to have enemy love for those around us, there is nothing different about us. 
There's nothing that makes us special as a church. Honestly, we might as well just not gather. Yeah? There's nothing that makes us special. There's nothing that makes Christ different from the world around us. What reveals Jesus to people is our willingness to say, I love you no matter what. So with that, my challenge to you today is this. Who is your enemy? And how are you making your enemy your neighbor? listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.